Thank you for choosing Miniaturist of Baptist Church podcast. We hope you benefit from this message. If you'd like to learn more about Miniaturist of Baptist Church, please visit our website at miniaturistachurch.org. Well, trusting you have a Bible handy by, I will have you turn to Romans 12, 4 through 18. Romans 12, 4 through 18. We're going to talk today about church unity. And Paul, not surprisingly, has something to say about it. Paul had many things to say about many things. So, here's what he has to say in Romans 12. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ accordingly to the grace God or to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them, those gifts, accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherhood. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in the spirit serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As a church, we will show ourselves to be unified when, pencils at the ready, if you're filling out your lucky number scorecard, when we give preference to one another. I'll dodge back to Romans uh, 12.10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. As Christians... We have a special duty to see everyone, saved and unsaved, as a fellow image-bearer of God. It is the root of human dignity and the basic obligation that we as Christians have to our fellow men. Racism, classism, snobbery, condescension, elitism have no rightful place in the heart of a Christian because we know that that other person, if they have nothing else, possesses the common grace of being God's image bearer. I'll say that again. If an unbeliever has nothing else, 
they share in the common grace of being God's image bearer. What is common grace? Common grace is the grace that God gives to everybody, whether or not they're saved. Blue sky and sunshine, rain on your crops, refund on your tax return, good health, avoiding that patch of sharp stuff in the asphalt that would blow your tires. Common grace. You get it simply because you're here. God has special grace for the saved, but he has common grace for his whole creation. And that kind of the crowning glory of common grace is we are image bearers of God. This is the reason that secular humanism doesn't work. The reason is, is if we are not image bearers of God, if we are the sum total of our accomplishments or our birth or our social caste or our bank account or our orthodoxy in thought, whatever it is, then people are going to fall on a spectrum. George Orwell said, everybody's equal, but some are more equal than others from Animal Farm, if you remember that from high school. And so, if you fall on a spectrum, you get different amounts of dignity afforded you. If you know anything about the caste system in India, you know what I'm talking about. But if I start with the premise that you are an image bearer of God, I automatically must afford you a level of dignity and respect And that's a great place to start since if you think about what Christians preach, it's kind of weird. God comes down in human form and he starts, you know, he's a carpenter and then he preaches and then he's killed and he comes back to life and what? That's a, that's a pretty weird story. If, if we are going to carry that gospel, if we are going to have people in a state of mind where they can apprehend the truth of the gospel, we need to be different than other people around them. Uh, We need to be different than the other so-called great religions. And, and, And one of the ways that we are is that we understand that our fellow human beings are image bearers of God and for no other reason deserve dignity and respect. Because that might be a future brother or sister. And I'll just, to put a finer point on it, understand that whoever it was that brought the gospel to you saw you the exact same way. Right? They saw that unsaved person, and they saw you as an image bearer of God. So I think about the person, the neighbor, who led me to Christ. And he saw in me, and I was a pretty ugly package at the time, he saw in me a fellow image bearer of God. And it was on that basis that he extended me grace. And it was because of that that I was able to listen and God cleared my ears and I was able to hear what he had to say. So that's the obligation that we have to everyone, saved and unsaved alike. But to our brother and sister Christians, and especially with whom we attend church, we have a duty, a preference, if you will, of honor. 
We have a duty of honor to other Christians and especially those under this roof. Well, what does that look like? Take a look at uh, verse 16, if you will, in um, Romans 12. Here's what that looks like to give preference. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. There is no such thing as too good to hang out with someone experiencing trouble or addiction or struggling with a problem. There's, there, there's no such thing as being too good to sit down with that person. Previous church I went to, the pastor had a great, great saying when he was talking about the church leadership and stuff like that. He'd said, if you aren't willing to clean the toilets, you cannot serve as an elder of the church. Right? If we are unwilling to sit and listen to the problems or the struggles or share the pain of our brother or sister Christian, then we are not giving them preference. We are being haughty of mind. If our automatic or our default response is to look down our nose at somebody who's struggling in one way or another, we're not showing preference. We will be unified in the church when our brother or sister's struggle becomes in some part our own struggle. And we offer to carry that burden in whatever way we can. I'm not saying that it is our obligation to solve the problem. I'm saying it is our obligation to help them carry the burden. So perhaps resourcing them some way, maybe we know somebody who can help, whatever that is, but it is a privilege and an honor to get down into the mud and the blood of their problem. It's a privilege and an honor and an obligation. That's what family does. We help. And so we want to be unified as a church, and the way we do that is to care about our brothers and sisters' problems and struggles, whatever they are, particularly if they're a prickly person and not easy to love, right? Because that's all of us on one day or another. But when we do our best to dive into that situation. So, give preference to one another. Number two. As a church, we will show ourselves to be unified when we don't make our leaders' jobs difficult. When we don't make our leaders' jobs difficult. If you'd like, you can turn with me to Hebrews 13.17. And if you're like me and you need help with this, you've got to skip past First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Colossians and Thessalonians and Timothy. You've got to go way back. If you've hit the book of James, you went too far. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. As congregants... We owe a duty of obedience and kindness and discretion and orderliness and a sense of decorum to our deacons and our pastor. Now, I want to be clear about this. We do not owe a duty of obedience to unbiblical teaching, 
or heresy or illegal acts or conduct that would bring disrepute on the church. It's not blind obedience, but it is a duty of obedience and discretion and orderliness and a sense of decorum as laid out in Scripture so that the rest of the world can see what it looks like for a body of people to operate under God's appointed authority in the church. Scripture says, they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. God holds the church leadership accountable for what they do. So if the pastor or the deacons are doing something wrong or injurious to the church, you can bet that God will settle up that account. He will hold them responsible for what they do in the governance of the church. That's not our job necessarily. They're raised up by God for our instruction and our examples. They are officers in God's church. That's the mechanism by which God chose to run his earthly church. There would be elders, there would be a chief elder, or what we would call a pastor nowadays, and they are informed by God's revealed will in this book. That office and those responsibilities deserve our consideration and our respect. And the fact that we hire them or elect them isn't a license to take pot shots. Indeed, our hand in the selection of the pastor and the deacons only confirms our responsibility toward them. So we caught them, we got to clean them, right? <laughs> Chet says amen. So what does that look like? Before we act or speak, we should ask ourselves the following. How does this action, or how do these words, help the church and further the cause of Christ? That's the litmus test. How is what I'm going to say, or what I'm going to do, further the cause of Christ? Do we really want to watch the playback of our interaction with those folks or a spat or gossiping? Do we want to watch the playback of that with Jesus at our side? I don't know about you, but I'm saying no thanks. If we don't want to have Christ next to us when we watch that replay, then don't do it. It's just as simple as that. Take care to ensure your actions. We should take care to ensure our actions and our words make their job easier, or at least not harder. And we want to honor their position in the church. So it used to be the case that people respected police officers simply because they were police officers. It used to be the case that people respected teachers simply because they were teachers. And the same with pastors. And the same with any number of offices that were held 
either governmentally or by the church. There was this automatic duty of respect and honor that we gave them. That seems hopelessly old-fashioned today, doesn't it? But that obligation does remain, it, it, and that obligation does remain particularly in the church. It is easy to think of church as a transactional thing. That the church and its officers are vendors, if you will. And that if they, if they aren't delivering the product that we're interested in, we can simply go elsewhere. You won't find that model in the Bible. If we have decided to place ourselves under the authority of Christ, if he has called us to be under his authority, and he has, and we've said yes by accepting him into our heart, by confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, by believing in our heart that he was raised from the dead, and in our faith tradition, by marking that act of obedience uh, by baptism, then we have automatically placed ourselves under the authority of the local church. That's a really, really tough message to swallow in today's society where it just feels like we can hold up our hand and say, you know, I'm just not on board with that, right? But the question that we should ask ourselves when it comes to the direction of our leaders is, why is it that that person would be giving me this direction? We, 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 want, to start from the, we want to start from the spot that says they are doing their best to prosecute the word of God in the church. They're doing their best to do what God's revealed will is telling them to do. Now, if they're mistaken, we can certainly have that conversation with them. And there's a time and place to do that. And that is one of the services that congregants, particularly senior members, but the deacons particularly, um, can do is to, if the pastor is an error or one of the deacons is an error, to take them aside. There's a, there's a biblical framework for it. To take them aside privately and say, not for nothing, but I think you're wrong on this, and, and let me tell you why. Okay, But that needs to be done in love. Sometimes we'll see Christians rubbing their hands at the thought of conflict. We don't want to be that guy. We want to be heavy burdened. We want to make sure that we take the plank out of our own eye before we go after the speck in our brother's. We will show ourselves to be a unified church when leadership is a joy for the people who are entrusted with that responsibility. And understand that this command in here is put for those of us who sit in the pew. God will take care of managing their performance. He will hold them to account for what they say and what they do. In the final judgment, for teachers, pastors, elders who have led people astray, Jesus says that it would be better for a millstone to be tied around that person's neck and cast into the sea rather than what he has in store for them on Judgment Day. So the stakes are really high if you decide you're going to be a pastor or an elder or a teacher. We want to make sure that we are checking our Bibles and making sure that they have you know, that what they're saying is correct. That's biblical. Paul tells us to do that. We also want to entrust their service to God. By the way, 
I had occasion to uh, sit in a Catholic service not all that long ago. And one of the things that I, that I really appreciate about Catholicism is that when you walk into particularly an older Catholic church, all of the architecture tells you one thing. You are in God's house, right? Can I get an amen with that? I mean, it's really big and you're very small. It's, it's one of the things that, that I really love about this church. When you walk in here, um, e even with those two glass panels missing in the back, you just get the feeling that you're in God's house. But what I really like about being in this church is folks bring their Bibles or they reference them from the pews. And we should do that. And the reason that we should do that is... We don't, want, we don't want to take the word of somebody who's standing up here telling us stuff, right? We don't want to allow people to pull rank on us simply by virtue of the position they hold. This is a trust. We should be biblically literate enough to pick up on when somebody makes a mistake, okay? And then we want to help that person see their error so that they don't repeat it. And we'll do that with the full confidence that if they've taken on this responsibility, they want to do a good job. Okay? But large, uh, I'm not going to take a particular pot shot at anybody, but these, these, these larger health, wealth, and prosperity gospel churches, fill in your favorite person there, where there's very little Bible, um, and the Bible that is preached there is taken out of context. Folks there have oftentimes allowed themselves to be drawn in, and they don't know enough about what's in this book to be able to say, that's snake oil. That's not really what God says. God says nowhere in his word that he wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and live in a big house and have a bunch of cars and stuff like that. That's not, there's no framework for that. It's not that wealth doesn't come from the hand of God, and certainly there are fantastic Christians who, with, uh, with which God has, has, has blessed enormous wealth. But the idea that you sign up for Jesus and you get a big check, nowhere to be found. The idea that you sign up for Jesus and all of your diseases and illnesses go away, not there. So there's no such thing as, as health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, except in places where people aren't biblically literate enough to know that what their pastor is telling them is a mistake and nobody is holding that pastor responsible. Nobody is going up and saying, this is incorrect. Can you imagine what judgment is going to look like for that guy? In the words of my son Andrew, not a good deal for that guy. So... We want to make our jo uh, the jobs of our leaders a joy. And we do that by pitching in and knowing the word and participating and monitoring what we say and our state of heart when we say it. Last point. Turn with me, if you will, to James 3, 4 through 10. We will show ourselves to be unified as a church when we mind our tongues. So you just got to turn a couple of pages over to the right. James 3, 4 through 10.
I'm going to back up just briefly before I uh, start on, on verse 4. I don't know what it says in your Bible, but in my Bible, at verse, on, on chapter 3, the chapter heading says, the tongue is a fire. Does yours say that? What's that? The untamable tongue. tongue. Yep. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read verse one. I'm not reading it to you. I'm reading it to myself. This goes back to what I was saying a couple minutes ago. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. The stakes are high for me up here. I don't tell you that because I want you to be impressed. I'm telling you that because if I get up here and just make it up as I go along, God's not going to be pleased. This is his word. I'm in his house. He wants me to get it right. So, shields up. Take a look at verse 4. Look at ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot deserves. Or desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how a great forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very, word of iniqu- the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. And it is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. I'm going to back up and say that again. With our tongue, we bless our Lord. And we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. I won't ask anybody to raise their hand. Maybe you can wiggle your toe on this. But anybody here ever get into a big fight with their spouse or their kids and then have to come to church? I know that it's never happened to anybody here. Every mother, <laughs> Every mother she says. You, you heard that that happens sometimes, Chet? Yep, yep. Uh, it, I, it happens to my neighbors all the time. How easy is it to worship with that argument hanging over your head? Those ugly things that you say or those ugly things that you think and now... You're going to drag your sorry caboose into church and you're going to sing, holy, holy, holy. (laughs) Yes. I remember the first time I read this and I thought, oh my goodness, that's, he's talking about me. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. From out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what Proverbs tell us. Jesus echoes that same sentiment. What we say 
is what's in our heart. We are now expressing what's in our thoughts. So when we say those ugly things, even, you know, we just, it, it comes out of our mouth and you just wish you could reach back and grab it. You know, like on radio, they've got the 10 second delay. Don't, don't you wish you had one of those like in your own life? I, I wish I'd, I'd pay extra for that. There is no such thing as just asking or just kidding when we make a snippy comment. Why? Because from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And for Christians, more than most, tone matters. Tone matters. Remember what your mama said when you were growing up? Jet, it's not what you're saying so much as how you're saying it. Right? Oh, I, I wish I had a dime for every time my mom told me that. Michael, which is how I knew I was in trouble, it's not what you're saying. It's how you're saying it. Tone matters more than most for us as Christians. Why? Take a look at verse 9. With it, with our tongue that is, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Non-Christians are really, really, really good at picking up the inconsistencies between what we say and what we do. They're very attuned to that. So it's not outside their capacity to give us a break if they know we made a mistake. But if on one hand they're hearing us tell them, you got to get Jesus or I'm going to bang you over the head with my Bible. And in the next breath, we're gossiping about the person you know, who works in the next office over or we're telling a certain type of joke or we are giving voice to some really ugly or ungodly thoughts, they pick up on that dissonance. And it's not that they see that there is an inconsistency between your faith and your actions. What they see is this is representative of all Christians. This is the only Christian I know, or this is one of a few Christians I know, and they're all like this, and so it must be a bunch of bunk. Right? And if you were that person, well, what's the percentage in giving up a life that you're perfectly happy with? Right? What's, what's, what's the value in pursuing something other than what you're currently going after? Because frankly, if you're unsaved, the world's got a bunch of great stuff on offer. We're asking people to lay that stuff down for something that we're saying is better. But if we act as though we don't buy that, then they will never see the promise of the gospel. So what does that mean for us in the church? Well, certainly it means that we don't want to drag that outside stuff into the church. Jesus was talking about um, giving offering or bringing a, a gift and remembering um, that you have something against your brother. Remember what he said to do? Leave, leave your gift and go and reconcile yourself with your brother. When Paul talks about taking communion, he encourages people to take communion with a worthy heart. If you have something against somebody, 
Paul tells us. You want to resolve that before you take communion so that you do not take judgment upon yourself. Again, I won't ask people to raise their hands, but have you ever had to let a communion plate pass you by because you knew that you had conflict with somebody that you had to resolve? That's a really humbling thing. You only want that to happen once or twice, right? But if you don't do that, if you come to church and I'm all cheesed off at will and I'm just not going to make it right with them because after all, heck with that guy, right? If, if, if I'm not going to make that right and I take communion, which is a participation in the fidelity and the um, the continuity of the body of Christ, the togetherness, if you will, of the body of Christ. I'm making a mockery of that, and God doesn't like that. He tells us so in his word. I must, in order to avoid judgment, go make that right with will. And if, I, and if it takes me two, three months to do that, then i got to invest that time. I have to. Because I can't have in my heart the things that would impel me to say ugly things about my brother or sister in Christ. I can't do that. It is necessary for me to humble myself in front of God and in front of this person with whom I have conflict and set it right. I need to set down my desire to be right. And that's really hard to do. That's really hard to do. I have to set down my desire to be right. It's not important that I'm right. It's important that I'm obedient. If I'm obedient, everything else will fall into place. So you remember the first part, uh, the, the, the first passage that we read today, it concluded with, insofar as it's up to you, live at peace with all men. Right? Now, it might not be up to me. I might go to, I might go to Will and say, geez, you know, I'm sorry I've offended you. And Will might say, you know what? Stuff it in your hat. I got nothing to say to you, right? Well, now it's no longer up to me. I, I have tried to live at peace, and, and now Will has to go through that exercise. But that, in the church, we should be quick to lay down our offense, quick to lay down our arms. Why? Because they're our brother and our sister. If we wouldn't say something directly to a person, we don't want to say it behind their back. If we wouldn't say it with Jesus present, we should let, leave it unsaid. And, by the way, where two or more are gathered together, Jesus is there. So, I really want to make sure that I'm not gossiping. We will never be a unified church if we don't master our tongue. This is a lifelong struggle. It would be awesome if we could just quit it like that. This is a lifelong struggle for us. God gives us the ability to make decisions. He gives us the ability... He gives us an incredibly long string. And with that comes an enormous amount of responsibility. This is tough to master. The, the um, Old and New Testament talk about this notion a lot. It is hard to master the tongue. So we want to be careful what we're saying. I'll conclude with this thought. The church is populated by sinners. Oh yeah, it is. The church is populated by sinners. We are being saved. We are being 
sanctified. The Greek tense of the verbs show that salvation and sanctification is an ongoing process. We are saved, but we are also being saved. That's what sanctification is about. So the thief on the cross saved and had maybe an hour of sanctification, right? If you were saved 40, 50 years ago, you have been being sanctified. You are undergoing the process of sanctification. What is sanctification? That's the work of the Holy Spirit making you more like Jesus. So if you look over the arc of your Christian life, you, you can see less sin. Or you can see different sins that God has brought to your attention and worked on you to master throughout the, the, the course of your life. But we are being saved. And we are being sanctified. In other words, God isn't done with us yet. Which means he isn't done with our neighbor either. So, what does that mean for us? That means the church is not a spa for the healthy. We're a hospital for the sick. It's not the healthy that need a physician. It's the sick, Jesus said. And that's what a church is. It's a hospital for the sick. Those closest to God have a deep and abiding sense of their sinfulness. They know, like Paul said, I'm the worst sinner I know. Mike Colstock, I'm the worst sinner I know. Why? Because I don't know your sin and it's none of my business. That's between you and God. But what I do know is my sin and it ain't pretty. So those closest of God or closest to God have a deep and abiding sense of their sinfulness and their mindfulness of God's grace toward them manifests itself in humility and in obedience and in graciousness toward others because they know that God isn't finished with those other people yet, just as he isn't finished with them. And so we show unity by bearing with one another with joy and with grace and a willingness to cut the other person some slack. And give them the benefit of the doubt. And when they are at their most challenging, we will be a unified church when our grace is at its peak. Will you bow with me? Father God, uh, this sermon is as much for me as it is for anybody who would hear it today. Your word is very clear about the type of conduct that is befitting men and women of God. It's clear that you want your house to be different. It's clear that we should be an example of graciousness and humility and obedience and kindness toward others, save or unsaved. But particularly in this body, our time together and our lives together should be marked by unity and grace and goodwill. And so I'd ask, Lord, that you would dismiss us with that thought in mind, that we would spend this week thinking of ways to mark our conduct toward others as being particularly gracious, particularly helpful, 
particularly notable in that our graciousness toward others would reflect your graciousness toward us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Minnetrista Baptist Church is a community of Christ followers who value preaching and teaching scripture, biblical obedience, community, prayer, and evangelism. If you'd like to learn more about Minnetrista Baptist Church, please visit our website at minnetristachurch.org and come by for a Sunday morning service. We'd love to meet you.